This, 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 this is K-U-T. K-U-T. K-U-T, Austin. Stop. This is KUT Weekend for the last weekend of January 2018. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5, the NPR station in Austin, Texas. Here's what we got for you this week. The Austin School District debates renaming schools named after Confederate figures. It will be a symbolic step towards recognizing that anti-black racism still exists. The Cold War origins of Austin's emergency alert system. Every time I hear the test on the radio, I think about how many decades I've been hearing that same test. And a new restaurant in downtown Austin takes a different approach to Mexican food. You know, there's something going on there that I think is bumping right up against being truly interesting. Those stories and more in this edition of KUT Weekend. The Austin Independent School District's Board of Trustees is considering a significant change to a group of schools in the district. Back in November, the board proposed changing five AISD school names because the people the schools were named after served in the Confederate Army. Earlier this month, the board decided to slow down its timeline for the decision. So KUT's Claire McInerney reports why this vote will not happen as originally planned. The school board started this discussion in November. It proposed changing the names of Lanier, Reagan, and Eastside Memorial High Schools. Also, Fulmore Middle School and the Allen Center, which is an administrative building. The reason these five schools were chosen? They were named after men who served in the Confederate Army. Eastside Memorial is in the mix because its former name, Johnston High School, is named for a Confederate soldier. This discussion came at a time when things like this were happening all over the country. Cities and public institutions were removing Confederate statues and symbols, including some at the University of Texas. So the district started talking to people at these schools. The board planned to vote on whether to change the names next month. But early in January, board members expressed reservations about this timeline. Board member Yasmin Wagner said the criteria for choosing schools felt arbitrary. It feels incomplete because I can point to things like we've had conversations about the rebel mascot, but we haven't had any conversations about the maroon mascot. Board member Ann Tyke echoed this concern. She said only choosing schools named after Confederate soldiers left out historical figures whose values don't match the districts. For example, the namesake of Austin High School. Because Stephen F. Austin condoned slavery. So if we are going to be fair and we are going to address the wrongs done to African-Americans in this country, then let's not just Let's don't let's don't just do Lanier. Let's don't just do Johnston. Let's don't just do Reagan. The other issue the board raised is cost. The district estimates it'll cost $77,000 to change the name of just one high school. They'd have to replace all signage, stationery, uniforms, and anything else with the school name. Tyke said that might be hard to justify to taxpayers. All right, trustees, that's where I am. I am conflicted. After this work session, the board decided to continue having the discussion, but not make a final vote in February. Board member Ted Gordon wasn't at that work session, but he told a crowd at the Martin Luther King Jr. Day march last week that he isn't conflicted about this decision. He was disappointed in his fellow board members for slowing down the timeline. They succumbed to the political and social tensions surrounding these symbols of a problematic past. He told the crowd that in a school district where black students fall behind academically, changing the school names would be a symbol that the district is looking out for its students of color. He said changing the names won't dismantle the aftermath of slavery. However, it is the right thing to do. It will be a symbolic step towards recognizing that anti-black racism still exists 
and that we are willing to confront it. At the board meeting Monday, some Lanier alumni spoke up in opposition to the name change. Terry Ayers attended Lanier in the 60s. Never once did I hear in my four years at Lanier that Sidney Lanier was named after a Confederate soldier. He, we were taught that he was a famous poet, period. But another community member who spoke at the board meeting, Chelsea O'Hurry, brought up a point about historical context. Just because you didn't know why schools were being named doesn't mean that there wasn't an agenda around the reason that they were being named. She's right. It's worth noting when these schools were named. The school board named Johnston and Lanier in 1957 and 1960, respectively. Jim Crow was being dismantled and the federal government was forcing schools to desegregate. It was in that climate that the school board named two schools after Confederate soldiers. Meeting minutes from the time say the board members mention these individuals' service in the Civil War as reasons for choosing them. Some people are opposed to the name change, not because of nostalgia or cost, but because it seems like a quick fix for dealing with racial inequities. Claire also spoke about those racial inequities with KUT's Nadia Hamdan. Let's hear that. Claire, thanks for joining me. You're welcome, Nadia. So you talked with people at Lanier High School. How are they feeling about this conversation? Yeah, one sentiment I heard was this whole conversation put Lanier in a situation where it's not getting equal treatment once again, according to them. Um, We heard Trustee Wagner say in the piece, by focusing only on schools named after Confederate soldiers, we ignore some problematic mascots like the Rebels at Travis High or the Maroons at Austin High and the namesake of Austin High and Stephen F. Austin's history as a slave owner. Um, And this is something Lanier Principal Ryan Hopkins told me. By just picking a few schools and saying that this is a way to respect people of color, it discounts what it would actually take to make school life better for kids of color. I mean, uh, changing a name is pretty fruitless um, without kind of the understanding of why and then where do we move forward with that. He also told me this name change is kind of a breaking point for his staff and families after seeing the district overlook the school. One thing he cited was the fact that Lanier got the second to least amount of money for high schools in the recent bond agreement, regardless of needing facility repairs. And what about the teachers and students at the school? What are they thinking? Yeah, one student, Victoria Warner, spoke during public comment at Monday's board meeting and said all the focus on changing these names because Confederate soldiers don't align with the district's core values feels a little disingenuous. Health and safety of the students is a core value. Well, why isn't the money being fixed to to fix power outages because the first day of school, there was no power. And about two months ago, we didn't have any power again. It sounds like people in the school are saying, if you're going to pay attention to us, do it for the things we need, not just the name change. Yeah, that's definitely one of the arguments for why Lanier students and staff think this might not be a good move. But there's also an argument that changing the name of a school could be detrimental because it's like erasing history and not reminding future generations that a pro-slavery sentiment existed here in Austin. Um, Lanier business teacher Medina Willis shares that belief and told the board this at Monday's board meeting that they shouldn't change the name based on this reasoning. Please stop using AISD's core values and policy as to paint a one-sided picture as to why school names should be changed. This is infuriating because this is also how slave owners use quotes from the Bible to justify how they treated and manipulated their slaves. Well, if people in the Lanier community don't want the name change, what is it that they're looking for? I think the point here is that the name change feels like a token. 
Um, if the district wants to change the names, I think most of them will be fine with it. But what they really want is substantial change in how students and staff of color are treated and educated and celebrated in the district. Um, teacher Medina Willis, who we just heard, told me the district can't just say it's a place that doesn't believe in discrimination. She wants to actually promote students of different backgrounds having conversations because that's how they'll learn from each other. And Lanier Principal Ryan Hopkins echoed that, saying if the name changes, he hopes that's just a first step. Claire McInerney covers education for KUT. Claire, thanks for taking the time. You're welcome. This week marks five months since Hurricane Harvey hit Texas. KUT's Jimmy Moss reports on some of the progress and setbacks of cleanup efforts in communities that now know there's still a long way to go. Just a few days after the storm, Port Aransas home inspector James Pate was optimistic about his hometown's future. We're in good shape. It's just going to be a long process, and if everybody works together, uh, we'll make this town stronger than it ever was. Yesterday, making the drive into Port Aransas from Corpus Christi, he gives the rundown of the overall recovery effort. They installed new power lines. There's still a lot of homes on one part of the island that haven't been repaired. People are in litigation with insurance companies and all that. Several rental properties are back open. We don't have any souvenir shops open yet, but I would say 80% of the restaurants are back open. For the most part, I think Port Aransas has done phenomenal. Pate's optimism hasn't wavered, but it is tinged with five months of realism. I don't hear anybody whining about what happened. The biggest complaint now is why insurance isn't paying. I could think of 80 people right now that their house looks like it did after the storm hit. Port Aransas city planner Nicole Boyer gave a similar assessment of the town's rebuilding effort. Some steps forward, like school kids finally getting out of portable classrooms and returning to repaired buildings just two weeks ago. And some steps back. She is one of the many individuals still dealing with federal and state agencies as well as private insurance for her family's home. Yeah, we're still probably quite a ways out from moving back in, waiting on insurance money. Um, you know, there's so much work to be done and so little people here doing it. Which raises what could be the biggest drag on Port Aransas's recovery going forward, the lack of contractors and people on the island to complete projects. Though Boyer says the city's biggest assets, its beaches, were left intact. Kind of our biggest plus is that they were very little affected by the hurricane. Um, So the beaches are definitely up and going. She says the sand and sun will hopefully bring back tourists to Port Aransas this spring and summer and tourist dollars needed for a full recovery. Jimmy Moss, KUT News. Early on Saturday morning, about 600 volunteers are fanning out across Austin and Travis County looking for and trying to count people who don't have a place to call home. Ann Howard is executive director of the Ending Community Homelessness Coalition, or ECHO for short, and she spoke to KUT's Jennifer Staten about the count of people experiencing homelessness and said it won't cover everyone in the Austin area, but will yield a lot of important data. The volunteers are used to count the folks sleeping outside. So that tells us they are literally homeless. They might be on a green, you know, in a green belt, the street, a storefront, in a car, in a parking lot. And those are the folks we need to count and not only count, but survey. 
And in the survey, what kinds of questions are you asking? What are you trying to find out from people who are in that situation? Right. We'd like to know their age. We'd like to know how long they've been homeless. That tells us if they're chronically homeless or just falling into homelessness. We do check for any young adults or children that are not accompanied by parents or adults. We're always checking on that veteran status to make sure we know every single vet who needs help. What about people who may be staying temporarily with friends or with relatives? Maybe they have gotten some money together for a motel room for a couple of nights. What about people who aren't in the situation this particular night, but they still would be in a category that would be described as people who are homeless? Yeah. For this count, we don't count them because we don't really, we can't find them. We don't knock on every single door and say, is anybody sleeping in this house that, you know, uh, needs their own place to live? We have other ways to get at that larger number. I'm guessing we're going to find in the 2,000 to 2,200 range by counting folks on the street and in shelters. But we know that over the course of the year, it's more like 7,000, 7,400 that will come and will assess and we know are, are experiencing homelessness. Why does the count happen in the first place? So it is a federal requirement. Every community that wants money from the federal government has to do a count at least every other year. And it's best practice to do it every year so that we just have our pulse on where people are and make sure we're not missing anybody. And the value to that is just in the one sort of pot of money that that really comes through ECHO with HUD. We just got it renewed and it's $5.9 million that goes out to 10 nonprofit agencies for housing and support services. How do the survey results inform then the work that is done? Yeah, so sort of in two ways. One, HUD does use the point-in-time count figure to, as part of our renewal process. They want to see that number coming down. Thank goodness they also look at other performance measures. How many folks are we housing and do the folks that we house stay housed? System-wide performance measures, which are really helping us work uh, much smarter as a community. Locally, we're able to use it to help us with outreach. What we'll ask the volunteers, we will note exactly where folks are and and sort of their condition to see if we need to send back then, you know, on Monday morning, an outreach team to talk to folks. And we sort of then keep matching it up to what we know and make sure that these folks have access to um, sort of our system to help into their homelessness. How do you train volunteers to do the count and especially to ask the survey questions? Because I imagine that could be a, a bit of a sensitive encounter with people who are experiencing homelessness. And all of a sudden, here comes somebody. Can I ask you some questions? Yeah. We have a core group of volunteers. Um, we have team leads who have done the count before. There's a lot of faithful s- social workers, you know, that work in our nonprofit community or that work for the city and county that um, have experience. And so we do our best to match up the volunteer who's never done this kind of work with folks who have. But we, we have a training process. We talk to them. We role play. 
what is in the pipeline right now as far as addressing homelessness in Austin? ECHO has been working with stakeholders. We were actually asked by the mayor and mayor pro tem to put together a plan. What would it take for Austin to end homelessness? We're going to be presenting that plan or the city council's going to review it, I hope in February. What's in the plan? The plan has five components. We need to scale up what works. Outreach, shelter beds to make sure there's access to getting folks off the street, housing and supports. We need to address the disparities we see in the in the data. In Austin, the African-American community is showing up at a greater rate of, of homeless than in Austin. Why is that? I don't know, but I need to know and we need to deal with that. And then this effective collaboration, and it's going to take a public-private partnership to make it work. Ann Howard is executive director of ECHO, the Ending Community Homelessness Coalition. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Austin has struggled to figure out ways to increase its amount of low-cost housing. But a new group focused on the problem is coming up with ideas ranging from repairing aging apartment complexes to building 3D-printed houses. KUT's Saida Hassan reports on those and other ideas offered at an affordable housing accelerator this week in north-central Austin. For the past several weeks, a group of nine local nonprofits, government agencies, and private companies have been mapping out new solutions to the city's housing affordability problem. They presented their ideas at the Impact Hub, a co-working space on North Lamar, which organized the effort. Ashley Phillips, managing director of Impact Hub, said the process has allowed groups that might hold different values to find common ground. Because here's something I learned about This group of people that cares about affordable housing in Austin, you have to be radically hopeful because it is hard. An accelerator is an approach probably more familiar to startups than policy wonks. These groups had just three months to work with mentors, tap community resources, and map out their projects. And even with the short timetable, some of those ideas are already close to becoming a reality. David Steinwedell is president and CEO of the nonprofit Affordable Central Texas. The group is developing a fund that will support housing for people like teachers, musicians, and healthcare workers. Our desire is to be able to buy 50 apartment uh, properties and preserve over 15,000 units, and we're trying to do that over 10 years. One recurring point speakers made was that tapping the private sector could do more to help with affordability issues. Austin Mayor Steve Adler spoke to the group about it via video message. The, The government might try to find answers to these problems and these challenges, and it needs to do that. But the fact is, is the government's not going to be able to find all the answers. A lot of the the innovation and the creative ideas, the, the new ways of looking at things are going to come from people in our community. Of course, there are a lot of moving parts to Austin's housing market. In developing their plans, some teams went door-to-door gathering input from residents. They also considered the city's strategic housing blueprint, which seeks to add 135,000 new housing units in 10 years. A handful of groups are focusing on just that, finding ways to increase the housing supply. Monique Stevenson is the president of Developods, a company that's looking to build new homes out of shipping containers. Our goal at Developods is 300 units per year for the next 10 years, 
which would allow us to house 3,000 families. Ashley Phillips with Organizer Impact Hub says the group plans to apply this approach to more social issues. This spring, they're set to launch an accelerator around workforce development. Saida Hassan, KUT News. If you follow the news or listen to KUT, you probably heard something recently about a missile threat that really freaked out people in Hawaii for good cause because they were told there were ballistic missiles headed their way. And then they found out it's a false alarm. So when we got a question for our AT Explained project about emergency alerts, we thought it might be a good time to take a look at our own system. The question was specifically about the system behind the kind of tests you hear from time to time on KUT. The ones that come with an annoying noise. I'm sorry. I really am. I can't legally play the emergency broadcast we air when it's not an actual emergency or a test. I could be slapped with an FCC fine. This is a test of the Capital Area Emergency Alert System. So I asked some of the lovely KUT hosts, whose job it is to play these alerts, to do their best renditions. Hi, my name is Barbara Lindig, and I wanted to know uh, more about the emergency alert system and how it's operated in Austin and what we can expect from it. Lindig asked her question for our AT Explain series. Every time I hear the test on the radio, I think about how many decades I've been hearing that same test with that same language and those same tones, and it sounds so antiquated and just wondering whether it had any real use these days. Actually, it does. Every station's required to do weekly tests. Then there's monthly tests. Meet my coworker. Hi, my name is Michael Crawford. I'm a technical coordinator here at KUT Public Media. I pulled Michael into a studio to explain to me when, if at all, we'd play a real alert instead of just our required tests. It turns out lots of alerts come through our emergency system, things like amber alerts and severe weather alerts, like flash flood and tornado warnings. But the federal government only requires us to play one type of warning. It's called an EA. Emergency alert notification. And if it were to happen, it'd be a big deal. Comes from the president himself or at his direction. Alerting the country to a national emergency. That would definitely make it onto our airwaves. Other than that, everything else is optional. There's no evidence an EAN has ever been issued, but it has gone through by mistake, like in 2007 in Chicago. If you were watching CBS 2 at 7.30 this morning, you heard something unusual. Even An emergency alert system message normally issued to viewers about a federal emergency went out during that the That message show. went out over TV and, and radio. These alerts are all part of a larger system run by the federal government. It's called IPAWS, pause like a dog or a cat, which stands for the Integrated Public Alert and Warning System. It was the same system that alerted people in Hawaii earlier this month. Which warned to take cover because of an imminent missile strike. It turns out that warning was issued by the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. According to news reports, during a shift change, an employee, quote, clicked the wrong thing on a computer. That nuclear missile attack was false. It was never meant to go out publicly. But the modern U.S. emergency alert system was created for just such an event. So the initial impetus for what we would call emergency alert systems today was uh, during the Cold War. This is the Kremlin, citadel of Russian communism. Looking at Russia, we might see it as a country to this be This is 
Jeremy Suri, and I'm a professor of history and public affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. In 1963, the U.S. government created the Emergency Broadcast System, or EBS, and it's very similar to what we hear on KUT today. Those tones and that message. This is a test of the Capital Area Emergency Alert System. Three decades later, in 1997, we got a new system, EAS, the Emergency Alert System. As it became clear in the late 1990s that people were not listening to uh, radio as much as they did before, the hope was that you could use a wider range of communications devices. Things like cable TV and satellite radio. Plus, Surrey says, as we neared the turn of the century, we were less concerned with nuclear attacks. It was also designed, the emergency alert system, more for alerts about uh, weather, about storm, storms of different kinds, and uh, various other natural disasters. It's not clear whether the system was used during the September 11 attacks, but in 2006, the government redesigned the emergency alerts again. We got iPods, the system we have now. It pulled together a bunch of existing systems, including alerts for cell phones. It operates uh, similar to an Amber Alert. That's the part of iPods that most people are familiar with. Where you would get uh, a breakthrough message on your phone, uh, similar to what I think happened in Hawaii, where people were uh, received these messages on their phone telling them that there was an incoming missile strike. The city of Austin has access to iPaws, but they don't use it very often. Instead, they have a local service called Warren Central Texas, but you have to sign up. You can choose to be informed about severe weather or other emergencies by email, text, or phone call. The UT Police Department has its own service, too. For example, I get email and text alerts in real time about assault incidents on campus. But maybe having multiple emergency alert services, local and federal, is not so great. The negative is, of course, that we just insulate ourselves from it and we say, oh, yet another alert. And we, you know, left swipe and delete it immediately without even reading it. Michael Mosser is a professor in the International Relations Program at UT. He says too much emergency information could lead people to think someone's crying wolf. Or it could go the other way. Too many alerts and we start to feel like dangers at every turn. You could end up with a society that is always on guard uh, essentially paranoia, right? That, you know, sort of everybody is always tuned in to uh, everything that's happening and you end up, you know, sort of, as you say, hyper-aware. Concern that even a test, even a human parody of a test, is the real thing. This is a test of the Capital Area Emergency Alert System. <coughs> Audrey McGlinchey, <coughs> KUT News. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is wading into the Texas primaries and endorsing candidates he believes are more conservative, including in at least two cases, people challenging incumbent Republicans. This week, in a U.S. House race in the Houston area, Abbott endorsed a candidate in a crowded field of Republicans vying to replace retiring U.S. Representative Ted Poe. In a statement, Abbott said Republicans should cast their primary vote for Republican fundraiser and conservative Kathleen Wall. Mark Jones is a political scientist at Rice University. Thanks for your time, Mark. Sure. How unusual is it in Texas for the governor to get involved in primary races? 
Uh, that's pretty rare. Uh, now, it, it, it's actually very rare for a governor to get involved in an open primary. It's even rarer for them to get involved in a primary where a Republican incumbent is running for reelection. But the governor, I think, has made a decision after especially the uh, special session in August where uh, the governor felt very frustrated by what he viewed as obstructionism by the Texas House. And he decided that he was going to react to it by playing a more active role in influencing who's in the House come 2019. And I want to ask you about those House races in a moment. But the news this week is about the congressional district being vacated by Republican Ted Poe. There's a crowded field, about 10 Republican candidates vying to grab the nomination. And Abbott is supporting Kathleen Wall. Who is Kathleen Wall? Why is Abbott supporting her? Well, Kathleen Wall is a longtime financial supporter of Governor Abbott, as well as other Republicans. And her and her husband, Holly, are very well known in donor and activist circles. So it's something of a natural for Governor Abbott to support her, especially since the other leading Republican candidate in the race, Kevin Roberts, is more identified with the centrist wing of the party, people like uh, County Judge Ed Emmett and Speaker Joe Strauss. And I think from Greg Abbott's perspective, this is a uh, twofer in the sense that he's able to support a candidate that he views as more conservative, but also reward a longtime donor, and in doing so, add to some of the gender diversity within the Republican delegation, where we will call only one of the current 25 uh, Republican members of Congress in the House is a woman, uh, Kay Granger from up in Fort Worth. So I think if you're Governor Abbott, supporting Kathleen Wall is something of a no-brainer. She's a longtime donor. She's a well-known activist in the community. She's one of the most conservative candidates in the race, whereas her principal rival, Kevin Roberts, is more linked to the centrist wing of the party. And it allows you to add some badly needed gender diversity to the GOP House delegation, where presently you have 24 men and one woman, Kay Granger, from up in Fort Worth. That's an open primary. What about the uh, primary involving the incumbent state representative, Republican Sarah Davis? Why, Why does Abbott have a problem with her? Well, I think the problem with Sarah Davis is multiple. First, uh, she's the least conservative Republican in the Texas House. So that would be one reason that he's upset with her. He also didn't appreciate some uh, statements she made and uh, moves she made during the special session related to ethics reform that he felt were effectively an attack against him and his integrity. So overall, I think, you know, Sarah Davis, for both ideological reasons as well as for pragmatic political reasons, is on the wrong side of the governor. And he's decided to make an example of her by supporting her opponent, Susanna Dacopil, in the primary. Uh, For somewhat similar reasons, he's uh, opposing uh, Wayne Faircloth down in Galveston, although there it doesn't seem to have much to do at all with ideology because Representative Faircloth is quite conservative. I think what the governor doesn't like is uh, some moves that Representative Faircloth made that, uh, once again, the governor viewed as a veiled political attack on him. And as a result, he's supporting an opponent there, Mays Middleton. Mark, what kind of risks come with this strategy of investing political capital in endorsing candidates. I think the principal risk the governor takes is that when you openly back candidates, people are going to use that as a scorecard for your success. And to the extent to which the governor is successful and ousts these two incumbents, uh, Faircloth and Davis, as well as gets the uh, obtains the election of many of the people he's supporting, then he'll come out uh, looking pretty good. The uh, danger is that if the governor backs candidates who lose, then it's a emperor has no clothes story in the sense that people will view him as less powerful than he would prefer. 
Mark Jones is a political scientist at Rice University. The Texas primaries are Tuesday, March 6th. More than 40 Texans who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender are running for public office this year. Observers say it's an unprecedented number of candidates who are openly LGBT. And KUT's Ashley Lopez reports this isn't just a backlash against President Trump. No, 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 you're good. Mary Wilson is a pastor at Church of the Savior in Cedar Park. (laughs) One way I describe myself sometimes is bleeding heart liberal. Wilson, like a lot of liberals, has been pretty alarmed since Donald Trump was elected. So alarmed that she's running for Congress. I just shook my head and was like, all right, well, what else can I do? I mean, I've been a teacher. I've been in education. And so the answer came to me. It's like, well, I could run for office. Wilson is running against three other Democrats in a primary for Congressional District 21, the seat Republican Lamar Smith is vacating this year. Elliot McFadden, Joseph Kopser, and Derek Crow are the other Democrats running. Wilson was among the many folks who testified against the bathroom bill in the state legislature last year. The bill, opponents argued, would hurt transgender Texans. Wilson says she was concerned when she saw lawmakers voted for the bill, even though so many people had asked them not to. You know, you can have people line up for hours to testify, right? And then the committees will vote however they were going to vote, as if no one had ever come to talk to them. Mary Wilson doesn't make a big deal of this, but she's gay. Chuck Smith, the CEO of Equality Texas, says he thinks a lot of candidates from the LGBT community were also partially inspired to run after the bathroom bill debate. Uh, I think that this is in response to uh, to to what we experienced uh, in 2017, uh, that being almost seven continuous months uh, while the legislature was in regular and special session uh, targeting LGBT community uh, for discrimination. Dozens of other LGBT Texans have declared their candidacy for office, including state legislative seats. Smith says there are indications there could be a wave of liberal voters showing up at the polls this year and that some of these candidates could have a good shot of winning in November. And he says that could change the dynamics of the legislature. It, it makes it more difficult uh, for 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 discriminatory legislation to be talked about in in the third person uh, or about people who are not in the room. Smith says he hopes these candidates also start running on issues that don't relate to their sexual or gender identity. He says Texans have gotten to a point where LGBT candidates can run on other issues that matter to them and the people they would serve in office. And Mary Wilson says that's what she's been doing. Ashley Lopez, KUT News. It's going to be an exciting midterm election this year. One race you might not hear much about, though, is the one for Railroad Commissioner of Texas. The current chair is Republican Christy Craddock, and she's announced her bid for re-election. So let's take a look at just what this Railroad Commission is. KUT's Mose Bouchelle reports that it's a much more powerful office than the name might lead you to believe. If you have a milkshake. In the brutal final scene of the 2007 movie There Will Be Blood. Sociopathic oil man Daniel Plainview meets his rival for the last time. And I have a milkshake. 
He explains how he drained oil from the other man's land without giving him a dime. And I have a straw. There it is. That's a straw. If oil fields are like milkshakes, he says it pays to have a straw that reaches all the way across the room. And starts to drink your milkshake. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. Wow. What a performance. But does it have anything at all to do with the Railroad Commission? Yeah, yes, it does. You know, the commission acts like a, um, a court. This is Charles Matthews. He served on the three-member Railroad Commission of Texas from 1995 to 2005. I always say the Railroad Commission, you don't have to be real good in math. You only had to count to two because two people can make any decision. And they decide on disputes between oil and gas drillers. Somebody maybe who's trying to drill a well and somebody who's trying to protect a well. So nobody drinks someone else's milkshake. All business is a lot about closeology. The closer you can get, the better chance you have of hitting a well. But Mose, you say, I don't own an oil well. Why should I care? Well, here's why. On top of refereeing disputes, the commission regulates oil, gas, and more. That's drilling, mining, pipelines. You know, the thing that just terrified me were the pipelines. Matthews says when he served, there were 260,000 miles of pipeline in the state. He worried about leaks or explosions all the time. And you've got inspectors out there, but there's not any way in the world that anybody can monitor every day, all of the time, 260,000 miles of pipe that's underground. By regulating Texas oil and gas, the commission also wields immense economic power. Of course, there are things the Railroad Commission does not control, and one of those things is railroads. The name is just an historic artifact from the early days of the agency. Lawmakers can't seem to change the name no matter how often they try. And the industry likes, you know, the legislature's tried to change it. The industry just raised cane. They, they like the fact that a name is so unique, it's special to Texas, it's, you know, Texas is just a different place, and they, 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 like, they, just, they don't want to change it. They don't want to change it. The people who are deeply involved in the Railroad Commission, that is, people who get their livelihood from oil and gas, uh, would just as soon not have the name changed. David Prindle is a political science professor at UT Austin. Partly because uh, it's not well known in the rest of the state what exactly it does, and it, that's not necessarily a bad thing if you want to influence the commission. Prindle wrote a book on the Railroad Commission in the early 80s. He looked at the relationship between oil and gas companies, he calls them producers, and the agency that regulates them. And what I discovered was that because the homegrown producers finance Railroad Commission elections, essentially, through campaign contributions, essentially they are the constituency of the commissioners. Most people who serve on or run for a seat on the Railroad Commission are pretty upfront about that. They treat oil and gas not just as an industry to be regulated, but as a constituency to be served. Well, I mean, there's not a question that you know the industry. Again, former Commissioner Charles Matthews. I mean, you're talking to the industry all the time. They're the only people interested in what you have to say. <laughs> but that is changing as drilling in Texas impacts the daily lives of more and more people with no direct link to oil and gas. Everyday Texans are starting to take notice of the commission, often because of environmental concerns, says David Prindle. When the interests of the Texas producers has run contrary to protecting the environment, commissioners are much more likely to 
pursue the interests of their constituency as opposed to the environment. Also, the commission grants companies the power to take land through eminent domain. That's something that's earned a lot of attention from landowner groups. So before you cast your vote for a railroad commissioner this year, take a look at the candidates' positions on the issues. And remember, it has nothing to do with railroads and everything to do with milkshakes. Mose Michelle, KT News. The guys behind some well-known Austin restaurants, such as Hop Dotty Burger Bar, Z Tejas, Eddie V Steakhouse, and Red Ash, have a new restaurant downtown. This time they're taking a crack at uh, cuisine people take pretty seriously around here, Mexican food. Austin American Statesman restaurant critic Matthew Odom has already worked his way through the menu, and he's here to tell us what he found. Hello, Matthew. Hey there, Nathan. So what is this restaurant, and who's behind it? The restaurant is called ATX Cocina. Larry Foles and Guy Villavaso, who have a long history in Austin, they opened Z Tejas and they opened Eddie V's, as you said, and then sold it for tens of millions of dollars uh, years later. Mm. Uh, most recently opened Red Ash and Tumble 22 Fried Chicken Trailer. Now they've got this take on modern Mexican. Now, modern Mexican has been popular in recent years all over the country, from broken Spanish in Los Angeles to Cosme in New York City. And of course, the Austin roots are planted firmly up the street at La Condesa. Modern Mexican sounds like expensive Mexican, <laughs> but what is it really? You know, you get into some tricky language when you're talking about modern Mexican because you can wade into the waters of cultural appropriation, which is sure. uh, not good. But what they're doing is taking modern techniques to highlight ingredients found in Mexico. So they're presenting Mexican food in a new way, often to guests. And I guess what they're really trying to do is abolish the tired tropes of Tex-Mex combo platters. But anybody who's been to a Tlacoyo stand in Mexico City or the fine dining Los Danzantes in Oaxaca or even an Abuelita's Kitchen in Puebla knows that Mexican food is uh, doing fine before we got our hands on it. Sure. So what is on the menu? What do they sell? Any modern Mexican restaurant worth its salt needs to be nistamalizing corn in-house, you know, turning it into masa, making tortillas out of it. And so they're doing that in collaboration with a partnership with a company called Masienda, which is based, I think, in Oaxaca. And they have relationships with farming communities in Mexico, providing them with heirloom, non-GMO corn. And then ATX Cocina turns it into things like the tortillas they use and some oxtail quesadillas, which are peaked with pickled jalapenos and tanged up with a little bit marinated cabbage. That's a really great bar snack that they have at the top of their menu. They also serve them with queso fundido, which was a little rubbery and, and oily, which it can be. Um, you can also just get the corn tortillas with a trio of salsas to kind of get a sense for that corn. And when it's done best, you get the light sweetness of the corn, also a little bit of that vegetal twang of the three salsas. Mm. I'd say the nutty salsa matcha uh, was my favorite of those three. And then they get into their real heavier, bigger entrees. And what are those? And what are they priced at? I think your average ones are going to be in the low 30s. And some of them don't read necessarily entirely as Mexican. There's more of a touch to it, like a barbacoa beef short rib will kind of seem like a beef short rib. But there's a 
jalapeno chayote escabeche there. So they're using some Mexican ingredients. They have a braised lamb shank that'll seem familiar to steakhouse or bistro folks, but they make it with a guajillo broth and put some plump blue corn dumplings in there. So you're getting a little bit of Mexico in that way. Then they also do a really massive pork tomahawk. It's really a pork chop. They call it pork pibil. It's served with not enough onions for my taste, and then they pickle the pineapple instead of the onions, which is an interesting little touch. It's really just a nice big old pork chop with a little bit of Mexican flavors. But again, it kind of reads as steakhouse food with just a touch of Mexican influence. This restaurant's located in a rather affluent part of town, Cesar Chavez in San Antonio, the North Shore condominium tower, floor-to-ceiling windows. Seems like there's a lot of people in it when you drive by. What's it like inside? Yeah, I would say the most modern thing maybe is definitely the design. It's got these huge barreled ceilings. I think Michael Shue's Office of Architecture was involved in the design. It's actually a little cavernous, but it has a big bustling bar scene up at the front. There's different dining areas. There's a patio out back. The bar scene is extremely popular, and they have some interesting and smart uh, mezcal and tequila selections. They also have some kind of, I think I wrote, the gauche buffoonery of this uh, $100 <laughs> margarita called the Hundy. Sounds like something from Las Vegas. <laughs> it does have a bit of that cheesiness to it. There's also a duck carnitas dish, which I think is a nod to Cosme in Mexico City, who does some something similar. And it was, not only was it real oily, but they were called Los Patos Locos Tacos, like crazy duck tacos. And it, it does have a bit of that resort, almost senior frogs-ness to it for a place that is so classy and sophisticated, you'd wish that it didn't include, you know, things like that. It's not, in a, it's not a cheap place to eat. Is it worth it? You know, there's something going on there that I think is bumping right up against being truly interesting. I think it's a bit sloppy at times. I think it's a bit obvious at times. I love what they're doing with the corn. I do love some of their mezcal selection. It's not quite there yet for me. It's I think we need more modern Mexican, especially as a place as creative as Austin, as a place that has such a connection to Mexico that Austin has. I wanted more from it. And you're right, it is expensive. And so if you're going to spend you know, $80 a person on dinner, or $100 a person on dinner after drinks and tax and everything, you'll easily spend $100 per person. I want, I want more from it. And with the Super Bowl coming up in a little more than a week, there's a bit of a football link here I think is worth mentioning. Yeah, very cool. Larry Foles, longtime Austin restaurateur. His son, Nick Foles, is a Westlake High School graduate. He's quarterbacking the Philadelphia Eagles in the Super Bowl, the second wow. Austin High School graduate to ever quarterback in the Super Bowl. Obviously, Drew Brees, also from Westlake. So I don't know if ATX Cocina is doing anything for the Super Bowl, but they do have a big flat screen at their bar there. So I'm sure people will have their eyes glued to the television next Sunday. <laughs> All right. The restaurant is ATX Cocina. It's at Cesar Chavez in San Antonio downtown. You can read Matthew Odom's full review in Friday's edition of the Austin American Statesman or check it out online at austin360.com. Good to talk to you, Matthew. Always a pleasure, Nathan. KUT Weekend for the last weekend of January 2018. This commercial-free podcast is brought to you by the cool people who are members of KUT. If you want to become one of them, go to KUT.org. Click on Donate. If not, thank you so much anyway for listening. Feel free to leave us a nice review in the Apple Podcasts app or in iTunes. And don't forget to let your friends know to subscribe to this podcast, weekend.kut.org. Email any questions to nathan at kut.org. That's my email address, or you can ask me on Twitter. I'm at KUTNathan. Our theme music is by RAC. 
Really do appreciate you listening to this. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5 and KUT.org. Thank you.